Welcome to the New Books Network. Cancel culture is something all academics are aware of and some are concerned about. And I'm joined today by Greg Lukianoff, who was the co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind, which made a big impact, and who has now co-authored The Cancelling of the American Mind. Welcome to you. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. And can we just start with The Coddling of the American Mind, just to set the scene, as it were, and remind ourselves of what you said there. Basically, you were concerned about censorship on campus. Yes, but also uh, mental health. Um, I've been defending freedom of speech and academic freedom on campus for 22 years now. Um, and around 2014, uh, we started noticing what, what I identified as um, sort of distorted thinking around the medicalization of censorship. And because of my own struggles with anxiety and depression, I, I recognize that a lot of the sort of catastrophizing, overgeneralizing, doomsaying, emotional reasoning were the kind of mental habits that wouldn't just be bad for free speech because people were saying, you know, like if this per- this person comes to my campus, people will be mentally crushed, you know, uh, by them being here. That um, and, and, as an excuse for deplatforming, that it would be bad for academic freedom and free speech, but also uh, uh, disastrous for the mental health of young people. So the, the focus of, of coddling of the American mind is much more on everything from parenting to social media to K through 12 to create this perfect storm that was both bad for academic freedom and free speech, but also a true disaster for the mental health of young people. And, and, and what's interesting is people, I, I think younger people don't realize it wasn't always this way. Generally, if you wanted someone not to come, and actually in a lot of cases, people didn't, uh, earlier in my career, certainly when I, when I was in school in the 90s, the arguments usually weren't, don't let this speaker come. It was, I'm going to protest outside the, when the speaker's here. Um, and moving more to the, this person shouldn't come here at all, or even worse, uh, which really upticked around 2017, this professor needs to be fired for saying something controversial. That was not as that anywhere near as common as it has been for the last 10 years. And the truth is, and you now document this, some professors have been fired. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, and the mission number one of canceling the American mind is to establish that cancel culture is real, which we define as an uptick in campaigns to get people fired, deplatformed, expelled, etc., um, beginning around 2014 and the culture of fear that, uh, that, that, that came from that. And, uh, you know, we looked at the entire sort of history of academic freedom in in, in the United States. Uh, It didn't really begin until about between 1957 and 1973, when it became clear that the American First Amendment protects academic freedom and student freedom of speech. And looking back, there's no period anything even vaguely like this so, um, in terms of the number of professors getting fired. We, we looked at o- over a thousand examples of professors getting targeted since 2014, um, and about two-thirds of them were punished in some way. Almost 200 of them were fired, including something like 40 tenured professors. And that's, I mean, p- to put this in perspective, the number of professors that were that they were believed to be fired for being communist during the Red Scare, according to the biggest study of the time, was about 63. There were additional, uh, it, they usually round up to 100 when they count other uh, professors fired for other reasons relating to their opinions. Um, so it, it was only about 100. Uh, well, I mean, 100 is actually really, really bad. And now we're dealing with a situation where it's twice twice as many, even though the law is very clear in the United States that you're, you're not supposed to be allowed to, to fire a professor uh, for their political point of view. 
And we know that it's also just the tip of the iceberg because when we asked professors um, how many of them had been uh, invest, investigated or threatened with investigation for their research speech uh, for, for things protected by academic freedom, one in six said they had been, which, which was a number even shocking to me. Right. So can you just take us through, first of all, to understand what's happening? Can you tell us about the 10-year system? And I mean, many of our listeners actually will be familiar with this, but just, just to explain how deep is the protection? I mean, you know, we've always, I've always assumed you know, before all this sort of era hit us, that it, that it was rock solid, you know, that you could not be fired. And that was the whole point of it. You you, you were completely right for, for most of my career as well. So the tenure system was something uh, that uh, you know, there were different versions and suggestions of it going back, I think, long before the 19th century. Uh, but the American Association of University Professors in the United States in 1915 and then again in 1940 really argued for protecting, uh, making it essentially impossible to fire a professor for their point of view, for their research, for, for their pedagogy. Um, and for most of my life, it actually, tenure was rock solid. Uh, so like I said, I've been doing this 22 years. The first decade I was around, I saw lots of professors punished. I don't think I saw, I think I maybe saw one tenured prof, uh, pr- a professor fired and they had, to, they had to have some other reason other than their academic freedom. I don't know exactly how this has happened, to, to end up with 40 tenured professors fired, that, that suddenly it doesn't offer that much protection anymore. Um, it doesn't seem to be a major change in the law, as best I can tell. Um, but uh, so, somehow, uh, over the last 10 years, you're seeing a lot more professors that tenure doesn't even offer that much of a protection anymore. Some people involved in this sort of thing, because it can get so nasty, would just sort of give up and think, you know, I just really don't want to fight this, and I, I'll go home and, and read. Uh, but presumably some do want to fight. What happens when it gets to the courts, or has that never happened? Oh, it, do, it does get to the courts, and what's well, one of the reasons why this is kind of surprising is oftentimes professors win. Um, I talk about the very sad case of Mike Adams um, in, in the book, and he was a professor. He's a you know right wing professor uh, with a kind of in your face kind of uh, mentality, but also kind of a jokey. Like he he was he, he was inspired in his own words by Lenny Bruce, and I defended him way back in two thousand one, right when I started because he had uh, sort of picked on a student and actually had just really responded, I think actually in a relatively like, um, polite way, but to a student who said America had 9-11 coming to the whole campus. And she's like, well, you know, uh, you're, you're, you have the right to say that just as uh, the First Amendment protects, you know, bigoted and silly thinking, you know, something not even that harsh, basically. And that he got investigated back in 2001, and he was one of my first cases. And he got in trouble over and over again for, for some of his you know, conservative uh, speech. But he did go to court once to defend his, uh, his denial of tenure on the basis of the idea that it was, uh, it was based on viewpoint. And he won in court. And in doing so, by the way, he actually won a major victory for about, uh, for, 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 for in the entire Fourth Circuit, which is you know, several states in, in the United States, including places like Virginia, that actually provided better academic freedom protections um, to, to, to everybody like in that circuit. But he was he's in the book also because he was someone who um, in 2020, he tweeted out something cracking a joke like he always w- was. Um, and in this case, he, he was likening lockdowns to slavery. And apparently that was considered too offensive. He uh, there was, um, 2020 was a crazy year and students organized against him. Uh, he got a, he got sort of forced out, but he got a severance package. Uh, and I thought he I thought of all the professors we were seeing that year because it was it was 
basically a tsunami of professors asking for the help of my organization, the Foundation for Individual Rights um, uh, in exp uh, Expression. And I checked in on him in mid-July of 2020, thinking he would be fine. Um, apparently, protesters were still coming to his house. They were still calling him on the phone. He had filed a, a police report because he was scared. Um, and he killed himself the next week. It is obviously awful to have students and, and you know your colleagues and everyone else sort of ganging up on you. I mean, you, you, you do talk about a witch hunt mentality at some point. Tell us about that. We, we talk about that um, in Coddling the American yeah. Mind, and, and actually we try to be kind of technical about it. We talk about Emil Durkheim's standards for uh, witch hunt and make the point that even though the term is overused, when you have a situation, and this, and by the way, this pattern repeats a lot. Someone says something, so, someone even like might, might uh, publish an article, you know, that is controversial. Th th this happened back in 2017, I think. It was a prof it was a professor who published something in a, in a magazine called Hypatia that was arguing um, that essentially if you can be it, if that you can decide to change sex you can also potentially be transracial that essentially if it's about self identification as a thought experiment couldn't you actually decide that you're black for example and this was in the in, in the circumstance of Rachel Dolezal a, a white person who famously pretended to be black now. Interesting, provocative, sure, um, but but this immediately led to what we would call sort of a cancel mob going after this one professor. And that one of the things that really made it have the dynamic of a witch hunt is that people were privately apologizing to her, um, saying, listen, I know my name's on this petition against you, but I hate to see what's happening to you. But they felt like they had to in order to protect themselves. And and that's the kind of hysteria you see that, that, that rightfully, you know, is called more of a witch hunt. You're talking about, uh, you know, now a significant number, a group who've been fired. How many of them would be, let's say, Republican rightists, and how many of them would be Democrats, leftists? That's a little harder to tell. And we usually think what matters more is what direction it comes from. Because frankly, there are so few conservatives in higher education, particularly elite higher education, that you, you get the you get sort of the wrong impression if you just counted the number of conservatives being fired, because there just aren't that many to be fired in the first place. But when you uh, but there are lots of cases, by the way, um, where and I say this as someone who considers himself, you know, a center left liberal, um, that you see a lot of cases where where the sort of progressives come after the more old-fashioned <laughs> liberals uh, and that a lot of the professors getting fired are, you know, are from their left. But about one-third, and we're very clear about this, we spend some time talking about right-wing cancel culture in this book, about one-third of the punishments actually come from usually the off-campus right. Why off-campus? Because frankly, on most campuses, there aren't that many conservatives to begin with. But we've seen a number of cases where, yeah, and one, I, let me give you one particularly galling example. At Babson College in Massachusetts, um, in, in another time of international strife, a professor there um, cracked a joke on Twitter about um, Trump's mentioning that he might actually attack uh, holy sites in Iran dur during high levels of tension with them. Uh, and he, he he wrote something that got written up on social media, like Babson professor uh, consults with Iran to give advice on where to bomb. And and you see, you see the tweet and he's kind of like, um, yeah, 
Ayatollah Khomeini, you should attack um, our cultural sites. Here's a list. Um, the Kardashian residence, the Mall of America. It's clearly like his joke is that there aren't really cultural uh, centers in the United States. Like it, it's just a, you know, a, a simple, obvious joke. This got treated like he was actually advising the Ayatollah Khomeini and he got fired for that. And that came and that was hysteria generated you know, by the right. We're now in the middle of this Israel Gaza issue, and it's very striking to me that um, you know a lot of uh, the press in the UK and a lot of the politicians, I think even the Prime Minister, is is basically insisting on particular language being used by the BBC and uh, and others and and people who are on the streets protesting in favour of uh, the Palestinians are, are sometimes being arrested. So I mean that that, that is part of the story too isn't it i mean this israel i mean this is one of the issues that that leads to trouble yeah no i I, what we've been seeing going on in europe is 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 kind of horrifying to a lot of americans i think they banned like flying the palestinian flag in france for example so some of the proposals over there in response to this are, are are scaring scaring us quite a bit Meanwhile, in the United States, um, you know, we've seen. I was like, I was lucky to start around nine eleven because right after nine eleven, I got to see maybe. I think there were about 17 different professors targeted after 9-11, which, by the way, at the time was a lot. Uh, three of them lost their jobs. We defended all of these professors, of course, back then. Um, three of them lost their jobs, but all three of them uh, lost it for reasons other than their academic freedom. Uh, one of them had engaged in serious academic mis- misconduct. The other one was believed, found to have you know ties to um, Islamic terrorism, so they could fire you for that. Uh, whereas... Uh, uh, but there, so there was an uptick in people getting punished. Right now, we're in a little bit of a well. What, well what's going to happen? We, we've heard a couple reports of incidents in which uh, a, a student might be invest, being investigated for being saying something that was pro Hamas. We also see a case coming out of Stanford, which is actually easy in the other direction, where a professor singled out um, uh, Jewish students, made them raise their hands. You know, are you Jewish? Uh, said that they were colonizers and made them gather their stuff and stand in the back of the room and they considered to continue to berate them, you know, about claiming that they this uh, that you colonizers have killed way more than six million Jews killed killed in the um, uh, in the Holocaust. And that's something that you're banned just from anti-discrimination law <laughs> in the United States. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's, it's it, and we know this is just beginning. It, it's going to get ugly, but thankfully we haven't had the, the situation of protesters being arrested like we're seeing in Europe. When you look at the TV arrangements, certainly in the UK, but I think in, in Europe generally, you know, we have much more mainstream steady television and you have these extreme tv channels you know all on the basis of your free speech you know constitutional rights and so on but it, it it's yeah quite easy to argue that your tv system is feeding a culture war and is extremely unhealthy for your society and that the regulations that exist on broadcasting in in, in the uk and, and elsewhere in europe are are beneficial and they do limit free speech i mean they do limit what the broadcasters can say yeah, I, I don't think the problem with American um, media is, is is freedom of speech and or too much freedom of speech. I think it's you know market segmentation. I I, I will I will ap- hap- happily own the fact that um, cable news is you know kind of a mess. You know, and I and I mean that for Fox and and, and MS, NBC, but our our equivalent of the BBC, uh, you know NPR, uh, hasn't exactly been covering itself in glory in some of these cases as well. So I don't. That, but 
yeah, I don't think the problem in the United States is is too much free speech when it comes to this. Uh, and but you know, I, I I still listen to BBC World News. I am also very aware, um, and my mom's British, that there are laws, uh, you know, that apply to things like national security at a level that uh, would not stand a minute uh, scrutiny in the United States. And I actually think we're better for not having. Um, the kind of strict national security laws that Canada, Britain, and, and Australia have. When we're talking about free speech and, and how you know far it, it's legitimate to go with deplatforming and all the other things you've talked about, there's one obvious sort of uh, measure of this, and it's it's when the speech incites violence. Uh, and you, you know, I, I think many people could settle on that quite happily, and that that anything that doesn't incite violence is is okay. But we're so far from that now, aren't we? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and this is something what, what I, I'm the rude American when I go talk about, you know, the, the American Constitution and particularly the First Amendment when I speak in Europe about this, because the, the, the polite constitutional lawyer thing to do is just say, oh, you guys are totally right on all this stuff. And I make it a good argument for actually the American First Amendment being far better thought out um, than a lot of Europeans understand. Because, yeah, we, we, we don't uh, allow for incitement. We just have a strong definition of incitement. Uh, threats. Um, and this is something we're starting to see, you know, to some degree on campus are, you know, uh, something that would put a reasonable person in fear of bodily harm or death, absolutely not protected. Defamation is not protected, but we have strong protections to make sure that, you know, that politicians can't misuse it. So I actually think there's a lot more common sense embedded in the American First Amendment than, than, uh, uh, than sometimes I think Europeans appreciate. I was, I was struck that you described yourself uh, earlier in this interview as centre-left, and I, mm-hmm. I suspect you might feel the need to say it. Oh which yeah, is, which, which which I which I hate, by the way, and and it's something that I take on in the book. Um, so one thing that we do that, that I had some fun with, and and that I think is um, something I you know it's something I've been thinking about for a long time, is try to uh, get people to think of cancel culture as just the most extreme tactic in a dysfunctional way of arguing. That cancel culture is sort of the you know I don't like your opinion, and I'm going to find out something you wrote 40 years ago to make sure that um, that I ruin your life or you lose your job. Or, and that nobody else wants to actually make that argument again. Basically, it's a tactic for scaring people out of uh, out of disagreeing with you. And then we situate the whole thing in a larger dysfunctional way of arguing. And we point out the right and the left have what we call rhetorical fortresses. And the step one, of course, on the right is it, it, uh, is labeling someone liberal or or more likely woke. Um, as a way of dismissing them. And of course, since we're talking about just name calling, this means that, you know, uh, staunch conservatives are routinely called woke if they think it's going to be a, a tactic to use against them. But on the left, I mean, I, I have to admit this, like when I, when I, when I got to Stanford Law School, which was, you know, a big honor in my career, um, I, uh, you know, definitely, and also I came from a poorer background than most of the people that I went to school with. So it was, it was real culture shock. But I will absolutely admit that if you could do the thing where you kind of indicate that that author or that thinker is conservative, it was kind of taken for granted that you could just kind of check that person off your list of people to take seriously. And these are, you know, intelligent, highly educated people. But we, but still, when you watch the way we debate in the United States, um, often on the left, it is this game of can I label a conservative? conservative. And, and even if you're not, as soon as I'm convinced you are, I don't have to listen to you anymore. And I make and we make the point that that's arguing like children. Yeah. Earlier, you were talking about the sort of factors that you identified in the coddling of the American mind that have, that yes. have, that have led us here. Can, can you just I mean, is there any parallel with the McCarthy era? Or is this just different in every respect? 
This is it, it, it's quite different in a lot of ways, and you, and you are right that that, that the you know the, the size of American higher education was smaller back in the fifties, um, but also like I said, there was no it wasn't clear that universities couldn't hire and fire whoever they wanted um, prior to nineteen fifty seven in the United States. One thing that is very different, uh, and is that generally in American history, and actually in most countries' history, the thing that leads to what I would describe somewhat clumsily as a mass censorship event is a war or a national security crisis. That, that, and, and that's the most typical circumstance in which you see major crackdowns on freedom of speech. And certainly, sometimes Americans who don't know their history very well can forget how utterly terrifying <laughs> the Korean War was, for example, and the fact that we were aware of British and American spies. That wasn't dreamt up. There really were people giving uh, the Soviets uh, technology that actually helped them speed up the development of both the atom and the hydrogen bomb. This is very well established at this point. So there was a, there was a scary international circumstance, whereas now it, it's not about a national security threat. At least it hasn't been since 2014. It's about this weird, it's oftentimes about sort of um, almost like catching someone in a faux pas uh, say, saying something kind of dumb uh, on Twitter and then really going after their life. And on campus, unfortunately, given that campuses these days do tend to be much more politically homogenous, it behaves a lot more like blasphemy. I, I actually think the best parallel for mass, the, 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 for cancel culture uh, in American history is the Victorian age. Because the Victorian age tended to be, it went after things that were seemed to be indecent and, and blasphemous, heretical, etc. But it came from, one, tended to come a lot more upper classes down and from a cultural quasi-religious sentiment. And I, and I think that honestly, the best parallel to what's going on today is something that looks a lot more like the Victorian age than any other period. You think that's interesting. It's, it's, it's not, it's not religion, obviously, is it? But it's got, it's got parallels with religious censoriousness. It's got religiosity. Um, this yes. is this is an argument that um, uh, my uh, John McWhorter, who's a, who's a friend, wrote in a book called "Enough uh, you know, uh, Woke Racism." But he makes the example that it does uh, a lot of the seriousness and commitment to sort of the I think he even calls it like the social justice hymnal is, is the way he puts it does seem to be taking the place of religion in a lot of people's lives. And I asked my co-author, uh, social psychologist Jonathan Haidt. Do you think it's that's a metaphor, or do you think it's literally taking the place of religion in people's lives? And and he very confidently answered, "No, I I think that a lot of this is literally taking uh, taking on sort of a religious importance in people's minds, which is one of the reasons why in cancel culture, you know, um, forgiveness, uh, mercy, etc., uh, you know, can be so hard to come by if you're a blasphemer." Right. It's very interesting you say that because I've always thought that the environmental movement has a religiosity about it. But I'm going to have to think now whether whether <laughs> you could extend it to this because it, 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 you know, the absence of religion has left a vacuum, probably. Oh no, I, I definitely think so. And it's it, it's funny because I also you know come from an environmentalist background. But I have I, I also when I was doing human rights law, I was always the person like, so what are we going to do that's going to save the most lives? You know, like like so I, I, I tend to be very pragmatic about like what's the policy initiative we could do that will decrease carbon the most. You know, and sometimes I I I felt like I got from uh, some of the people I I worked with. It wasn't a good. It wasn't a good uh, solution unless people had to sort of personally sacrifice and suffer, <laughs> and that feels like a religious, a religious yeah, instinct to me. Yeah, Puritanism. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If if I were to say to you, if Twitter and the other social media platforms didn't exist, we'd have less of a problem. Is that true? 
Oh, absolutely. Doubtless. So I don't think that Twitter and social media have created all the problems we have in the world, but they did create some new ones and they certainly sped a lot of pre-existing problems up. Um, and, you know, by creating new ones, I mean, uh, and, and, and a lot of people really, because we've gotten so used to uh, people like me complaining about the effect of social media, we kind of forget what a big difference it is for, for the human race. And so when I was studying the First Amendment, actually, you might enjoy this, I, I did six credits on censorship during the Tudor dynasty in England um, to actually, uh, because that's actually where we got a lot of our ideas for prior restraint First Amendment law. That, that, and that goes back to the um, uh, the licensing of the printing press in England, basically like having the crown say that only licensed printers can print and that that's a, a way of controlling a speech in the country. And I and so I got to study a lot about Henry VIII and Elizabeth. And essentially, people need to remember that the printing press, the original disruptive technology that brought several million people into the global conversation. And in many ways, at least in the short term, it was a disaster. (laughs) It led to religious wars. It led to civil unrest. It led to an increase in the witch trials, um, which is something that people generally don't know. One of the best sellers was actually the Maleficorum, the book that uh, helps you identify witches. Um, so in the short term, it w- there was no way it couldn't be disruptive because you you added millions and millions of people to the global discussion. Um, so anytime you do that, it's going to be disruptive. In the last fifteen years, we've added billions of people to the global uh, conversation in a way that to be and to be completely clear, has never even vaguely existed before. This many people being able to talk directly to them to to each other in real time, and so. A lot of times I see, even even my co-author, John Haidt, there's a sense that maybe regulation can put the genie back in the bottle. And my answer is no. Like after the printing press was, investigated, was invented, there was nothing Henry VIII could do to put the genie back in the bottle. This is going to be a crazy period, and we have to learn how to navigate it in, in, a, in a much weirder world. But that's not quite right, is it? Because they, they did start licensing papers after the printing press came in. They said you can't publish what you want. You They did bring in free speech limits to control the damage it was causing they did but it didn't work very well <laughs> is what i'm saying like, like the, the unlicensed printing was was very common you know black uh, uh um black market writing was everywhere you know basically the attempts to put the printing press genie back in the bottle just didn't work not not, not for lack of trying let me just ask you a bit about social media regulation because 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 it's quite interesting that china is now doing things that i think many in the west would support uh many parents anyway you know like limiting the amount of time that children can i mean and really harshly limit you know strictly limiting the time uh that children can spend on social media and of course they've also got this very effective mechanism for controlling what people say on 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 social media to, to the extent that, you know, managers in a company are responsible for all their employees' tweets. And if they don't get them deleted, the ones that the government doesn't like within you know, 20 minutes or something, they lose their job. So these very, very, yeah, and it sort of works. I mean, you, you know, you just said that the <laughs> post-Tudor stuff didn't work. But I, I think the Chinese government probably feels it's quite on top of its social media control. Are the Chinese ahead of the West in terms of, you know, they obviously take it in a, an authoritarian, repressive way. But are they ahead of the West in terms of at least attempting to control some of the damage that's done by social media? Well, of course they can because, you know, they're an authoritarian, totalitarian country. And the so, the, you know, they have powers that I'm really glad we don't have. And I think that generally 
there are actual downsides to that much control over the flow of information. Um, th- th- there was a very interesting report done by the United States. Uh, it was at, um, right after World War II, and they tried to figure out why for, uh, why the Allies actually won. And one thing that they they did point to, and I, was it George Kennan? Uh, 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 no, no, it was Marshall. Um, George Marshall was actually like the, the, he, he was one of the people who led the report. One of the things they did point out was that the free flow of information was one of our superpowers, because in the totalitarian countries, uh, the, the Nazis, the fascists, but also for that matter, the Soviets, it was harder to know where problems were. It was harder to actually know what needed fixing, etc. Whereas even though there was some clampdown both in Britain and the United States, we still had a relatively free uh, press. And that actually made a huge difference. I personally think that if there was a free press in China, COVID never would have gotten, uh, would have broken out of, of Wuhan. It seems that TV is to varying degrees regulated and uh, the press is regulated, libel laws, defamation laws, all the rest of it. And, and so- social media is causing new harms, uh, which everyone can see. They're as plain as anything and they're pretty big ones. And, and nobody except the Chinese is talking about regulation. Well, we are talking about regulation quite a bit in the United States. We have to figure out if it's something that fits within the law. But as far as steps that I think are really helpful, for, for example, schools across the country are now, um, or at least some schools, are banning the use of cell phones during the day at school. And I think that's just common sense. I think that's healthy. I think it's a way to detox from your social media and from your phone. And so far, it's been incredibly positive for, for young people. And those are some of the adaptations that I think we need uh, as a society to figure out ways to balance the existence of this uh, technology and also, you know, limit limit it, it, its harms. Um, I talk a lot about free range parenting. One thing that uh, that I know is going to be a challenge is keeping your kids off social media. I, I have a five five and a seven year old. I think it is actually be, becoming easier um, if you are in the right parental community to to, to do that. Um, I may be proven horribly wrong, of course, but I do think there are attempts. There are, are smart attempts to try to address the problems that are created by social media. And I don't think we need to go full China uh, to, 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 to address it. Yeah, no, I think full China is a terrible idea, but it just, <laughs> it just seems they've done something. You see this problem mm-hmm. uh, off campus and on campus, and it's, it's uh, becoming part of the American culture. Is it still advancing or is it in retreat, the cancel culture? So the number of professors getting fired or punished has been down this year. Uh, and what I'm afraid is people are going to get, oh, look, it's all passed. Just like we did in the 90s with, with political correctness. We're going to say, oh, the fever has passed, so therefore it's over. Meanwhile, I started working in 2001 when everybody thought you know things were fine. And I can attest, actually, the, the problem uh, had moved from it being a problem of the students and the faculty to being something that was uh, that, that administrators were the ones kind of pushing uh, punishing students and, and faculty for what they said. And it happened, you know, w- w- it, with less media glare around it. But we are right now seeing less, uh, fewer professors getting in trouble than we did in, say, 2021 20, and 2020, and for that matter, 2022. But also, that was an all-time high. <laughs> so that was just, you know, I'm amazed they can find, with such low viewpoint diversity, I'm amazed they can find this many heretics to burn, I, I often joke. And in terms of things that were... Um, especially bad in the past couple of years, it's been shoutdowns in the United States. Um, we had a, 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 my alma mater, Stanford, had a crazy shoutdown of a Fifth Circuit judge. Um, about a fifth of the class showed up to shout them down. And then an administrator got up and gave a speech about whether or not free speech was, if the juice of free speech was worth the squeeze, it was 
painful to listen to. Um, this something uh, that this happened at Yale. Uh, Robbie George, you know, famous conservative professor, was just shouted down a couple of weeks ago. This happened at San Francisco State University, where the university actually seemed to side with the students doing the shouting down. There were rocks being thrown at, at a conservatives, um, you know, just a couple months ago. So I think that it's uh, and given what's going on with uh, ha- Hamas and Israel. I think, uh, you know, the rumors of the Dessa cancel culture are, are going to feel greatly exaggerated the next year. Oh, and for that matter, Trump, the, the election next year. I mean, it's going to be I'm not looking forward to 2024. And I feel like 2024 has begun early, um, given all the horrors we're seeing abroad. Yeah. And when you do your work trying to protect these people or, or, or advise them, what's the most effective tactic you've got? Honestly, um, if you're a student or faculty member, it's to contact my organization because the most effective thing we have is a ton of experience trying to help students and faculty in the real world. There are many, many cases, by the way, that the most important thing you can do is make sure that people know that you're being targeted. Because so often on campus, the speech that you're getting in trouble for isn't even particularly offensive, <laughs> at least by, by everybody else's standards. And uh, just, you know, seeking out the, uh, my, my organization, The Fire, we can help you navigate that. And, and sometimes it seems counterintuitive that to be better known is actually makes you better protected, but it's almost always the case. There are some cases when the speech might be less sympathetic or that the uh, or the harm actually much more clear where actually litigation is the best way to go. Um, that isn't all cases, but in some cases, actually, litigation is, is the right way to go. And being able to distinguish those, uh, th- those cases from each other is important. I do think that there's something that every individual can do to help uh, with the problem of cancel culture is just, you know, um, first, stand up for your friends. <laughs> you know, if you see someone getting piled on, even though it might make you a tactic, uh, it may, might make you a target, the more people are willing to say, hey, you know, like this is this is my friend and they're a good person that can really help diffuse it. There was an attempt to get Steve Pinker at Harvard canceled in 2020. And that was completely diffused by people who respected him going, nope, <laughs> he is a great scholar. He's a great writer. Back off. So it can be defeated just just by power of numbers. But also, you know, for a really advanced technique, uh, standing up for people you disagree with, um, which is something that, that I think we understood better in both of our countries, maybe 20 years ago, saying, you know, I, I may disagree with what this person says. But In terms of reversing the trend you know, my yeah. final question to you uh reversing this cultural development and you've, you've, you've ruled out uh heavy regulation of twitter uh, and all those things can you see this turning around or is it just going to get worse I honestly think the most important thing we need to do is find and this is how to give you a sense of how pessimistic I am about some of this. Um, we need other other mechanisms. We, basically, America needs to be finding it, it, its uh, leaders from different institutions. <laughs> um, it's one of the reasons why I'm enthusiastic about experiments like the University of Texas at Austin, which is a small startup college trying to be a non-ideological kind of classic liberal arts school. I think we need experimentation in the way we do K through 12, the way people actually are able to show how smart and hardworking and well-read they are, because I think uh, America's reliance, disproportionate reliance on elite higher education um, is creating distortions in our society that just aren't healthy. 
Now, to be fair, uh, University of Virginia and University of Chicago are both two schools that actually are trying to buck the trend, and they're actually doing quite a good job of it. But Harvard, for example, in our our campus free speech ranking, which factors in 13 different factors, relies on the largest survey of of student opinion ever conducted and four of the largest databases on student, faculty, cancellation, and speech codes and deplatforming. Harvard finished dead last. Um, I mean, they actually got a negative score according to our rankings. So a lot of the schools that, um, that a lot of our leaders in the United States come from, particularly Harvard and Yale, they, they do terribly by these standards. And I think the, to some degree, the only solution is to not get as many leaders from Harvard and Yale. Greg uh, Lugianos, thank you very much for giving us so much of your time and uh, explaining you know, the thinking you've been doing on this. Very interesting. I, I greatly appreciate it. Thank you.